Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. Paul Cech is a world-renowned expert in the fields of corrective and high-performance exercise, kinesiology, stress management, and holistic wellness. Paul is the founder of the Czech Institute and the PPS Success Mastery Coaching Program. He's the author of How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and the host of the popular podcast Living 4D with Paul Cech. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you. So when you wake up each day, how do you avoid going on autopilot and treat each new day like two strangers meeting for the first time? Every day brings its surprises. So I've uh, gotten wise enough to know that no matter what yesterday was like, you have to be open for everything. And I get up in the morning and look at the sun. And one of the first things you notice is it's moving. And the moon is always in a different phase. So knowing the influences of extraterrestrial bodies on our own life, from our inner thoughts and feelings to our outer experience of the environment, um, I'm already aware that everything's new and every day is a, a new opportunity. And oftentimes we have challenges we have to face. And so when I finish one day, I sit in meditation, either in my sauna or take time before I fall asleep and just review my day and ask myself, should I meet that person or that challenge again? How can I live and love more fully? And so each day is for me a new day to not only embrace the kind of redundant and mundane with the new opportunity to get more out of it, but to, to realize that we're all moving through space at a very high speed and nobody's at the wheel of the planet. So uh, we have to be ready for anything. To me, life is a shamanic journey. And you've been in this field for some time now. So what continues to fuel your dedication to self-development? You know, I'm 59. I've been in this profession for 37 years now and been I've, I've been able to bear witness to the fact that you know, when I was in my 30s, I thought I was smart and knew what was going on. And in my 40s, I look back at myself in my 30s and said, God, how did I even make it through all that? And then in my 50s, I look back at, at my 20s, 30s, and 40s and say, wow, I know so much more now than I did then. If there's one thing I know for sure that I never knew as much as I thought I did. And in order to be efficient, I realize that being open-minded and uh, embracing any opportunity is, is really the way to, to live. And so um, I just keep looking for following my heart compass to see where my passion takes me. And I find whenever I let my heart or my soul be my, my guide, my seeing eye dog, that I'm always brought into deeper and deeper awareness of the magic of the mystery. And that's what kind of keeps it all exciting for me. You said you've been doing this for over 37 years. I'd love to know what you do to feel deeply connected with your clients and the present moment. There is nothing but the present moment. So the past is just memories that we have in our head. 
And even if you're looking at fossils, you're doing it in the present. So your perception of the past is always based on the experience of the present. The future is not here yet. It's, you know, from a quantum physics perspective, it's a probability wave and we're all creating it together. You know, I, I have a deep awareness that the present is the only place where we have an opportunity to grow, to learn, to change. And the way I connect with my patients is many ways, but one, I am present with them in, in their energy field so I can empty myself and feel what's going on in them by making myself an instrument that they play. And two, I am always interested in what they're engaging and what their experiences are. So I'm to really listen deeply, you have to be present with somebody. And as I tell my students, if you're 10% somewhere else, when you're coaching somebody, there's 10% of you that's missing from the equation, which means there's 10% that they can't access, which means there's a 20% deficit in the relationship. And just to put that into perspective, I say, imagine if you were taking a plane flight from LA to New York and your pilot was 20% off on his bearings, you would end up in another country somewhere. You wouldn't even get to your destination. So for me, life being a journey, whenever I'm with somebody and, um, you know, working to support them, then I take the responsibility of making sure that I've got my head and my feet in the same place. Mm -hmm. To listen deeply, we have to be in the present moment. And I, this reminds me, I just had this thought when I was walking through the woods, listening to an audio book or a podcast, you can do that while also living in the past or the future. But when you have that physical copy, that physical book in your hands, you can only read that in the present moment. And if you try to read it while you're walking, you might trip. <laughs> There's an old uh, story. Uh, it's about um, a beetle bug who uh, got flipped over and a centipede came along and said to the beetle bug, what happened? He said, I don't know. I was thinking about something and then I tripped and fell over and now I can't get up. So the centipede offers to help him and he flips him over and he walks away and the next minute the centipede falls over and he says, what happened? And the, he says, the centipede says to the beetle bug, well, you got me thinking about things and all of a sudden I got tripped up and fell over. <laughs> I love that. So when it comes to training and exercise for longevity, how can we train hard without putting unnecessary miles and pain on our bodies? Uh, well, there's a couple of approaches that I take. I tell people, train but don't drain um, and to the degree that you work hard you must also rest hard um, i also tell them that what, what my wife taught me perfect practice makes perfect so if your exercise is really an act of repetition or obligation but you're not paying attention uh, you might be exercising but you may not be ready to exercise you may need more or rest or you may need to stretch or mobilize or breathe or hold still and if you just keep pushing then your lack of presence and readiness just leads you to an injury then the pain teacher comes to make sure you remember what the present is <laughs> i think about this a lot when i coach firefighters who know they're not going to sleep at night or recover properly it's counterproductive to get a hard workout in or to you know cause muscle breakdown if you know you're not going to be able to recover but you still have to train. You still have to work out. Well, you do. 
but you have to be careful with the concept of working out. By definition, when you're working out, you're spending more uh, energy and resources per unit of time than you're accumulating, which is why it's called working out, which means it's catabolic or sympathetic dominant, which means tissue destructive. Mm -hmm. I created the concept of working in, which is using movements that are gentle enough and timed to your breathing that will not be uncomfortable to do on a full stomach and will not dry your tongue out. If your tongue starts to dry out, it means you're going from parasympathetic to sympathetic and you're spending more than you're accumulating. So if a person, I use Charlie Francis's rule, who is Ben Johnson's uh, coach, and he says, if you can't improve on your last workout by one to 3%, you don't belong in the gym. You should be doing restorative work. So I tell people just, if you can't, have a perceived sense that you've improved, then you should be doing restoration work and working in, which is pumping, breathing, grounding, centering, calming, activates the anabolic or restorative systems of the body. And then you're actually bringing more life force energy in and harmonizing the body and keeping it vital and listening to it because to work in means you've got to be present within yourself. That way, when you do work out, you can actually get that one to 3% and it really becomes uh, a benefit and, it, and it's not a destructive 1%. I also educate my clients and athletes and I've rehabilitated and conditioned countless firemen in my career. So I'm very hip to their game or their life. Um, Oh, I was going to tell you something that I tell them, but now it slipped out of my head. But basically what I try to inform people is, is that, uh, you know, you have to be in it for the long run. Otherwise you can be uh, fit and strong, but broken all the time. And you can tell who these people are because they almost always come to the gym with a bag full of, you know, tricks, wraps, props, supplements, pills, potions, drinks, monster, five hour energy, coffee, and all sorts of stimulants, which ultimately just uh, stimulate the, the sympathetic system and keep you more and more catabolic. And then eventually you just reach the point where none of those gimmicks work anymore. And your training actually starts to cause um, a diminishment of uh, performance, strength, muscle development. And the problem in our culture is people think, oh, that means they're not training hard enough. So they try harder and harder when they should be working in or resting. And the next thing you know, they've got an injury and now they're laid up for weeks or months at a time. So <clears throat> I really try to help educate them as to uh, having a much more intimate relationship with their body and, and the many indicators that it gives. And you know, I tell athletes all the time, if you need stimulants to work out, it means that you're already out of balance and that the other factors that are critical, such as diet, rest, the effective use of your mind um, are where your attention needs to go or movement uh, with, with regard to working out is actually usually the byproduct of, of um, either an identity crisis or a need to conform 
so that you fit into a group which may not be best for your needs at that time, or it's an addiction. That reminds me of something that you once said, your skeletons walk into the gym with you. So to master exercise, you have to master the concept of how stress works because the science of exercise is the scientific application of different kinds of stress. So how do we know what a therapeutic dose is and how do you know when it's time to back off and just rest? Uh, good, you reminded me of what I was gonna tell you earlier. I teach my clients and my patients and my students that there's two primary categories of stress. One is called eustress, which means useful stress, which triggers growth and the body can effectively adapt to it. And the second is distress. And distress, for example, would be, uh, like you said, being caught for a fire, being up too late at night. Um, and maybe that happens two or three times in a short period of time. So you're getting a progressive buildup of stress and toxins accumulating in the body. So if we don't manage our stressors so that the ones that we can handle and use them uh, so that they're useful stresses, then we progressively build distress even when we think we're creating useful stress. So a number of indicators are, for example, uh, the quality of a person's sleep just because someone's in bed eight hours doesn't mean they slept eight hours. And even if they slept, doesn't mean it was a good quality sleep. For example, people drinking caffeine and stimulants after about three in the afternoon due to the fact that caffeine has a half-life of about 500 minutes means that about four hours later, you still have half that caffeine in your bloodstream. And four hours later, you still have half of that. So so somebody who's not aware of that might be sleeping, but they're never dropping into dreamless, uh, deep, restful sleep. So they may be getting sleep, but they may, may not actually be getting the regenerative effects that would be there if, if they didn't have the system so stimulated. Um, so if you wake up and you have to drink coffee or something to turn your brain on, um, if your workouts, uh, if your warmups seem uh, laborious, your, if your body is aching more than usual, if you have nagging muscle joint connective tissue problems that seem to not be clearing up. Um, one of the great indicators for men is if you're not waking up with an erection, typically um, we go through cycles of erections at night. And if a person, a male is healthy, he usually wakes up with an erection or has an erection usually early in the early hours of the sun rising. Um, so if, if a man's losing his natural erectile function, which is linked to the cycles of sleep, um, it means that his vital life force energy is diminishing. Mm -hmm. And so the quality of one's sexual performance is a measure of one's libido, which is a measure of one's life force energy. And most people don't realize that the same resource that gives us good sexual vitality is what gives us the resources to run every cell in our, our body. Yeah. So if you think of our resources, like, like you think of a 12 volt battery in a car, uh, most cars today with, with modern fuel injection systems and things like that won't even start if the battery even loses one to one and a half volts of charge. So if our life force energy 
drops to the point where our capacity to reproduce or, or have healthy sex is diminished, it means that we're already at a diminished level of life force energy and somebody going to the gym to work out is actually depleting themselves even further. And so what you start seeing is diminished cognitive function, emotional fragility and instability, uh, the, the ongoing progression of physical aches and pains. Mm -hmm. And then as fatigue mounts, coordination begins to diminish, proprioception diminishes, balance diminishes, uh, your uh, short-term and uh, memory is also a great indicator of elevated cortisol levels. So when people reach the point where they're reading a book and they can't remember the last paragraph or they start forgetting things that someone just told them a few minutes ago where they can't remember their phone number and they have to look on, on a phone to see what their own phone number is. Those are indicators. Um, if they're experiencing headaches, that's an indicator that the body is getting behind. So there's, there's quite a number of indicators. I mean, uh, literally, I could probably sit here and list 30 or 40 of them, but some of the key ones, such as, in summary, your sexual vitality, your sleep quality, how long it takes to work out, how your body feels, how quickly your body warms up, yeah. and also your, your emotional stability, your mental clarity, and your sense of willingness as a person gets further and further away from balance, the, it takes more and more effort for them to drag themselves into the gym. And that's when you typically start seeing they have to drink some sort of motivation juice or take some kind of motivation pill to get them back in the game. Yeah. I mean, all joking aside, that morning wood is sort of like the gold standard for whether or not you're rested and your readiness to train. It totally is. Yes. And, and, um, it's always exciting when I work with, you know, I do a lot of work with elite athletes, even the amateurs that usually see me are elite, but, um, it's, it's exciting when they come back to me and said, Oh my God, I'm waking up with an erection for the first time in years or things like that. And just to show you how bad it gets, I've had two cases in the last several years of 19 year old athletes reaching out to me to ask how to get off of Viagra. And so when you consider that 19 year old young men should, should, you know, have a, they should be able to use their dick as a dinner bell. You know, it's, it, when I was 19, it would get so hard, it would hurt. And here we have people that are athletes that are taking pills for old men at 19 years of age. So when you've got young men who are caught in this modern workout concept and using so much biohacking to keep shorting and tricking the system that can't even have healthy sex, then it means that your entire culture is collapsing. And earlier you mentioned your sauna. I'd love to know more about your sauna routine because I'm obsessed. And I know you like to get in the sauna and do the no mind meditation after a long day of meetings and interviews. Can you walk me through what one of your typical sauna sessions involves? One, I use essential oils that I can use to modulate uh, various systems in the body. So for example, there's oils I can use that I can mix into a bottle of water, shake it up and then spray it on the stones so it diffuses into the environment. So some of them I use to enhance meditative states. Some of them I use to take me into a sleep state. So if I'm really tired, 
then I want to take a nap in the sauna and couple that with a good sweat. So I'm detoxifying. Hmm. If there's, uh, if I want to do some creative work, then I might put an oil in there like clarity that will enhance mental function. But so I use, uh, oftentimes I like to vaporize tobacco and herbs. So to keep my lungs clear, I use eucalyptus oil and spray that on the rocks and just do deep breathing exercises to get the moist heat and the eucalyptus oil into my lungs, which I find very, very beneficial. But I do all sorts of different things. Oftentimes though, I get up, I typically get up at four to four 30 in the morning so that I have time to do my spiritual practices and, and all my research from various projects before my kids are up and people start coming around. So by the time dinner time comes around, I've been up a lot longer than most people have. So when I get, typically I take saunas in the evening um, after I finish work. So by the time I get to the sauna, I'm pretty damn tired. And um, so my sort of standard approach is just let myself fall asleep. And then after I've had a power nap, if I say I'm going to stay in the sauna, for, I don't really have a limit, but I'll, I'll say I'm going to go in there for 30 minutes. If I wake up 20 minutes later and I got 10 minutes left, then I actually can have a real good deep meditation and get more in that 10 minutes than I would if I would have sat there from the beginning and tried to meditate when my body just keeps nodding off and trying to fall asleep or I'm so tired I don't really have any energy to do any productive thinking or that kind of work. So I sort of just really let my body guide me. And then if I have enough energy, then I can use the sauna for anything from prayer work to remote viewing to astral traveling and working with power animals and spirit guides to um, contemplative meditation to no mind meditation to various breathing type practices. So I really sort of just um, go by a, what does my body need so that my mind can be centered and B, what is it that I'm working on or practicing or developing, or what is it that I need as far as a technique to accomplish an objective? For example, people reach out to me for help with various healing crises from all over the world. So quite often I go into meditation in the sauna and do distance healing work for people, but I can't do that kind of work if I am tired because it requires, uh, it requires that I actually be able to completely focus. I have to both empty myself, but at the same time hold the intention that I'm putting into the universe and directing toward that given individual. I love that. It's sort of like the sauna is your, your hot temple. Now, when we talk about health and wellness coaching, we often say meet people where they're at as a means of kind of diagnosing their current exercise routines and diets. But how do you diagnose and meet people where they are on their inner journeys and spiritual paths? Ask them what their biggest challenges are in their life. Ask them what their greatest fears are. Mm -hmm. And um, just look at you know, it's very, I do a very comprehensive assessment. It takes most people about eight hours just to fill out the paperwork to become a client of mine. So I already know more than them about, about them than their mother ever did by the time they're seeing me. But 
I really just look at what are the living dynamics of their life. How is their body working? How is their relationships working? How is their relationship with their finances? Um, what, what, are, what are they uh, pursuing as far as dreams, goals, and objectives? How's that going? Um, and I just ask them, you know, how would, how would you like your life to be different than it is if you had a magic wand and could make it different? And usually they would say things like, well, I wish the hell I wasn't married to this woman. She drives me crazy or my freaking kids are driving me nuts because they keep getting into trouble and I keep getting calls from the principal and I can't seem to get my son to stop smoking pot or whatever the hell it is. I mean, it, you know, most people's um, entanglements are right near the surface for them. So it's never very hard for me to, to find at least what they think is going on, but the work really is then getting to the etiology of that because usually there are issues with sex, money, drugs, politics, life, relationships are all the products of their belief systems and most of them are unconscious. So my real work is not always dealing with the surface issues, it's dealing with the beliefs that drive the behaviors that lead to those problems. And that's where the process takes a little longer. And speaking of their fears, I mean, obviously this pandemic has really exposed our fear of, of dying and, and illness. And I know you think COVID is more of an illusion than a threat. And you say there are far bigger issues going on than COVID. So what are some major issues that you are concerned with that we can tend to on an individual level immediately? Well, one, we're losing our freedom of speech which means we're losing our constitutional rights as citizens. We're losing the sovereignty of our body and being told what we have to be injected with and what we have to do in order to get driver's licenses and travel uh, around. So uh, we, we should all be extremely concerned that a country that was built on the principle of freedom is turning into a fascist corporatocracy that is using our bodies and our lives as profit centers for the very few um, but what I was pointing to and am pointing to when I say there's much bigger issues than COVID, well, let's just look at what it takes for us all to enjoy life on this planet. We all have to have healthy water. And research shows that there's almost no place in the world where you can go and get water and have it tested and not find high levels of mostly industrial chemicals and toxins and nuclear fallout and all sorts of stuff that is extremely destructive to the living creatures that feed us and support us and keep nature whole. Um, so we have major issues, largely industrial. We have so much garbage in the Pacific Ocean. There's a mountain of garbage the size of Texas floating around out there that gets bigger every day. And that's releasing massive amounts of chemicals. We've now got all sorts of reports from all over the world that creatures of all types and rivers, streams, oceans, and lakes are not able to reproduce. We have huge, massive dead zones in the ocean where nothing will grow uh, and life can't exist. Uh, our air is dangerously polluted. We have been very complacent with monitoring large corporations. We've now got um, 
massive problems with Roundup, which is glyphosate, mm -hmm. uh, damaging the microorganisms in the soil, which reeks piles and piles of research has shown is probably the greatest contributor to metabolic syndrome because it's wiping out the microbiomes in our body. We're letting people produce and sell GMO crops, many of which such as GMO corn produce pesticides within the plant itself. And then we foolishly eat these things, which then wipe out the microorganisms within us that are very responsible for our even ability to be alive. Mm. Um, we've got uh, about, oh, since the second world war, we've been using NPK fertilizers all over the world which we're told not to be toxic and dangerous. And current research shows that the NPK fertilizers are not breaking down and that they're accumulating in rocks under the topsoil all over the world. And that there's so much of it now in the earth that if, we, if any of these regions was to get heavy enough rains, it would poison every river, lake, stream and end up in the ocean and could cause the earth to literally die. We've got... Um, so we got glyphosate, we got pesticides, we got Rudolf Steiner said, human life as you know it depends on two things, bees and trees. And if either of them get to a critical level, life on earth will cease to exist as you know it. It's well known worldwide that the bee population is dying out all over the place, which has been tracked right back to the use of farming chemicals, mostly pesticides in this case and electromagnetic pollution and systems like 5G that are distorting and disrupting the bees' abilities to live, to um, regenerate, to rest. Um, and uh, there was another one I was going to bring up. But anyhow, uh, recent research from entomologists is quite shocking. Uh, a friend of mine, Dave Murphy, the founder of Food Democracy Now!, which was the first company, the first organization to successfully sue Monsanto for damaging people and the land, uh, he sent me a research paper from a group of entomologists called Armageddon Maybe Near. And what happened was entomologists all over the world started noticing that bug traffic was dropping, dropping, dropping consistently. So they did a worldwide collaborative research study and concluded that in the last 50 years, bug traffic has dropped 75%. And why they said Armageddon may be near is because those are the pollinators. Those are the sex organs of the planet. And even my father, when I sent him this report, my father's a very experienced farmer, was the president of the Farming Association where we live, where I grew up on Vancouver Island for, on, uh, for many years. And he wrote back to me and said, we're up Schitt's Creek without a paddle. Um, and my dad said to me in his email, do you remember when you were a kid on the farm, there was so many mosquitoes, they'd practically pick you up and carry you away. I wrote back and said, yes. He said, I hardly ever see a mosquito ever hmm. on this property. And he farms pretty much organically. Um, and people have noticed this all over the world. So any day now, literally, and I am not being an extremist, nature may not be able to pollinate. And just to show you how absolutely ridiculously stupid this corporatocracy and scientific materialist viewpoint is, I saw in a technology magazine that a company that makes robots had proposed to the United States government 
that they could manufacture billions of robot bees and release them into the environment. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is the same kind of dumb crap that you see people like Bill Gates spraying aluminum all over the sky, which poisons the human body, poisons every other creature to try to cool the planet down when we've had free energy technologies forever. The government, government's been confiscating them from people and even killing people like Nikola Tesla and many others because they wouldn't give up their technologies because they were trying to do it for people. But we, the rich keep wanting to burn fossil fuels and maintain the status quo, which is killing everything. When you look at the level of, you know, smart people that are stupid, it's mind boggling. And to think that all a bee does is go flower to flower is means that you have almost no knowledge of biology. When you start looking at the complexity, not only of bees, but of all insects, I've seen some mind boggling studies showing how they were looking at, at uh, wasps and bees in this case, but they showed how they're interfacing with almost everything in the environment from the plants to the trees, to the other insects and and it's like we have we have so much hubris over our so-called scientific knowledge that we are actually avoiding looking into the deeper truths of nature and when people do that they're really considered to be outliers or uh esoteric or weirdos by the standard uh scientific paradigm people or the scientific materialists but you got guys like Steiner warning us all the way back in the late 1800s. Steiner said something very profound. He said, man will continue to invent technologies outside of himself until he either destroys the planet or realizes that all the technology he's invented is actually an inferior copy to the technologies that exist within him. Mm. The question is, which will come first, <laughs> the destruction of the planet or the realization? <laughs> Ask Paul Check to preach and he will preach. Well, I'm not trying to preach. I'm trying to state facts, all of which can easily be researched and found by anyone that's genuinely interested. I'm doing nothing preachy. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, I spent my life looking into this and studying the science and looking, you know, all the way back in the 60s, Rachel Carlson published Silent Spring, which gave mountains of evidence that we were in trouble then. And we we're doing everything she warned us not to do far worse. So it's for me, it's not about preaching. It's about saying, wake up. And that's why I said, look, when entomologists all over the world are telling you the sex organs of the planet are dying and you're watching television and thinking that our real problems are a virus that nobody's ever really seen. And uh, the inventor of the PCR test stately, clearly stated it's not a diagnostic tool for viruses, yet they're basing all these numbers off a fake test. And you've got uh, the medical association demanding that doctors label every possible death they can as COVID and paying them for each death that they label. Uh, now you're dealing with issues that are really not even close to the issue what you're dealing is 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 mind manipulation using advanced technology which is the weaponization of of, of our uh social media and 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 uh and media systems against us not for us and if you look at where all that money is going it leads back to a very small number of people
And all that money, Donald Trump gives us a $2 trillion bailout, which should have gone right into the soil, right into taking care of the planet. Because what we keep forgetting is that these things are things that every one of our lives and every creature in nature depends upon. Mm. So th this, this whole, you know, make the rich richer shit's got to go before we uh, have no soil, no water, no air to breathe, and, and, and the sex organs of nature collapse. And then all of a sudden people might realize uh, that their issues with so-called COVID are quite minor. Yeah, I think we'd agree that we have to accept responsibility for our actions and for ourselves, for how we eat, how we move, how we sleep. I like how you brought it full circle back to the soil, save the soil, pretty much save the planet. Well, you know, let me ask you this. If your house was on fire, would you immediately try to find a fire extinguisher or a hose or would you run around and make sure you had your mask on? I'd probably put the fire out. I think so. <laughs> I know we're running out of time here, so I just got a couple more questions for you before we wrap up. Psychedelic medicine is obviously undeniably effective and safe when used appropriately. How do you think we can normalize these plant medicines for first responders like police and fire who are suffering mentally and potentially these could be life-saving for? Well, you have to have somebody like myself that's got extensive skill and, and training and study and practice at using them. Uh, because one of the things you got to be very careful with, with, with the use of plant medicines or psychedelics is the fact that any unresolved traumas will often come right to the surface and can lead to very uh, scary experiences, not only for the individual, but for everybody in the room with them. And uh, I've traveled around the world and worked with many shaman and people carrying these medicines that weren't careful about dosing or screening and ultimately had very uh, unpleasant things, often violent and dangerous things happen. So really it's, it's a matter of, you know, and this is what the maps people are doing um, is really developing a system of what we need to be aware of, but we, we need to have a carefully developed screening system so that people that have things like PTSD, unresolved mental emotional traumas and childhood traumas can actually be screened. And then somebody that has enough knowledge of the which medicines work best for which types of situations. For example, a lot of people are running off to do ayahuasca, but that's often not the best medicine to use first. Psilocybin is a far better um, first introductory or even for the first several ceremonies if not the first year of ceremonies and interestingly the psilocybin molecule looks almost identical to the dmt molecule which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca so you know we have many effective drugs from lsd therapy to mdma therapy to psilocybin therapy to ayahuasca to marijuana and marijuana derivatives to san pedro and you know there's many of them out there so I think the key thing that we've really got to do is we've got to set up a system where we identify what is the challenge the person has, what is the things that should be done to prepare a person for an opening like plant medicines, what is the ideal dose and the ideal duration, and how can we integrate the experience so that the awakening and the awareness becomes applied in, in, in life practically 
so that people don't just keep going and using uh, psychedelics as escape vehicles or, or making the false assumption that they only feel good when they're using those drugs because that leads to huge problems. And I'm actually coaching a young man right now that was uh, using psilocybin too often and now is in a psychological crisis. And I have people come to me from all over the world that have done that to themselves. And then we have to have ceremonies for closure. So you have to prepare, you have to have support through the process, then you have to have integration, then you have to have closure, and you have to have adequate uh, time between ceremonies for the individual to begin to put the insights and the realizations to work in their life uh, so that they're actually part of their belief and behavioral system before you take them deeper. Otherwise, what happens is a person actually gets opened up so much, they start forgetting who they are and they end up in a, a, a basically a, a crisis where they're not really sure which end is up anymore. And so that leads to all sorts of problems and I've seen a lot of it. So I think we're, we're close and I think there's a lot of people doing great work out there. There's you know, Stanislav Grof, there's Dennis McKenna, there's all the works of Terence McKenna and his brother. Um, you've got the MAPS system by Rick Doblin. Um, there's, you know, we're in our third wave of a psychedelic uprising right now. And I think that the, you could say the consciousness of, of the planet is bringing these medicines to us to help bring us back into touch with nature because our use of technology has pulled us so up into the field of mind or what is often called the noosphere in metaphysics that we've actually begun to worship ideas and technology uh, while we progressively lose awareness of our connection to each other and the planet. So if, if we realize that the experience you have on psychedelic medicines is deep, a deep sense of connection to everything, to nature, to each other, to yourself, where most drugs like alcohol do the opposite. Alcohol is legalized and used and allowed for soldiers because it enhances the ego, strengthens nationalism and makes you want to fight. But psychedelics do the opposite. In fact, when Albert Hoffman first developed LSD, he thought it might be an effective truth serum for uh, prisoners of war so they could get, you know, they can interrogate them with it. And so they decided to test it on a team of Green Berets, which, as you know, other than Delta Force, are pretty much the highest trained soldiers we have. At least it's the Army's elite level of soldiers. I was a paratrooper, so I was stationed right across the street from the JF Care Warfare Center where they trained the Green Berets. And it's a two-year training program. And I watched them doing a lot of the training. And I can assure you it's intense. And many of my friends were not only Green Berets, but were in Delta Force. So they took a team of Green Berets and gave gave them an LSD journey on, on a basically a 350 microgram dose, which would be about three hits, three to four hits of street traded LSD today. And you know what happened? Every single one of them wanted out of the military when the medicine wore off. And immediately the United States government knew they had to get rid of it because it would kill nationalism and stop all the rich people that use the military as a weapon of theft and destruction and for stealing resources all the rich people would lose their power and soldiers would wake up to the fact that they were actually destroying life, not protecting it. 
So that began the, <laughs> that was one of the beginnings of the death stroke of the psychedelic movement right there. We should be using our militaries worldwide to rehabilitate the soils, to clean the waterways. I mean, the military corps of engineers has very advanced technology. There's a reason that you can send a submarine down under the water for six months without having to carry water because they have desalination systems and we looking at the use of military corps of engineers. I mean, if you look at the advanced research the military does to create, to create weapons of destruction, if we just took the same tax dollars and the same powers and made an agreement, whether we like to fight or not, you have to have a theater to fight in and we're destroying the theater, which is gonna destroy our lives. So even if we wanna keep fighting, then we better do a little work on the game board. And I think if you look at the amount of money spent on the US military budget and what it would cost to rehabilitate this planet, one year of military expenses would probably rehabilitate the land, the soils and the clean the air. Uh, one, one year of military budget. And the reality of it is we have the technology being used within the military and the people in the military that if we actually task them with the biggest threat we have, which is to protect the nation against invaders, foreign and domestic, and realize that the invaders that we got to protect ourselves against are the very large corporations that are destroying the planet for money who don't really have any foresight or couldn't give a shit about your future because they're all about money, then the whole world would change and we'd actually be using the military for something very, very intelligent instead of just perpetually uh, creating the illusions of, of danger and stress to start wars to generate tons of money, which is anybody that does any study could, can find uh, mountains of evidence that that's how the military is used is, and, and that the military industrial complex is one of the richest uh, branches or organizations in the world that has now turned itself against itself because when you got 23 countries pointing nuclear weapons at each other and enough nuclear weapons to destroy the entire planet 179 times over they're in a stalemate. Nobody can actually afford to start a war, at least with those 23 countries, because everybody will lose. So now what they're doing is they're basically creating an autoimmune disorder by making everybody afraid of each other, by creating viruses and other threats. So they can weaponize your phone, your television, your listening devices like Alexa and all the home gadgets and create this illusion that there's all these threats within and among us. And if you just look at, for example, what they did with TSA after 911, we've spent billions of dollars to so-called enhanced airport security against terrorists, but solid research showed that after spending billions and billions of dollars, airport security has improved 0%. Hmm. So what you see is the invention of a massive security force to protect us from an illusory dragon that's making yet again, just a few people, billions and billions, in fact, trillions of dollars. So I described that we've created an autoimmune disorder and that the military industrial complex is now attacking its own people in order to stay profitable because they can't afford to start a nuclear war. Yeah, so instead save the bees and the trees and the soil. Or it doesn't matter because there will be nothing left but rocks and we will look just like the moon. <laughs>
All right, Paul, and I understand that you had James Carr scheduled to come back on your podcast, but since he's passed, so I was hoping you could share the most powerful lesson you learned from such an amazing soul. I think the most powerful lesson from James Carr is really understanding what a world is. In order to have a game, you have to have a world. So a world is any place where there are spectators and that there is a place or a field of action. So if you say, well, we live in the world, the earth, in the field or the arena of the earth, we play every game from war games to sports to relationship games to money games to political games to religious games. So when you realize that for a a game to exist or any game to exist, you have to have a place of action, which is a world. And in order for a game to exist, you have to have a, a field and you have to have rules. And for a game to exist, there has to be players and spectators and the spectators have to agree to stay in the stands and the players have to agree to the rules or the game can't go on. So the big lesson from James Carse is that before you can have a game, you have to have a world. When you have a game, you have to have an agreement of what the rules are. Well, we call that the Constitution of the United States. And the world is where we play the game of life. And now we're losing our world and our constitution. And nobody really knows what the rules are, or even what the truth is anymore. And they're using your own technologies to confuse you constantly. In fact, if you look at the Netflix documentary, which is shockingly good, called Social Dilemma, the very inventors of social media said the problem is it's gotten to the point now that big players like Google and everybody else do not know what the truth is. We are so confused. Nobody knows what's true anymore, yet we call that media. Okay, so I tell people all the time, you've got to be very careful because you're looking at a screen, which we used to call a television. And the word television means tell a vision And when you look at the fact that research shows that you can encode almost infinite information on light, that what used to be outlawed as subliminal programming is still going on, but at a much higher level of technology. And when you follow the money back, you find that there's only a handful of people controlling the entire media, one of which is Bill Gates, who, by the way, has a patent on the coronavirus and announced that there would be a pandemic three months after he was awarded the patent on the coronavirus who, if you follow the money, is controlling all the major media systems. And you can see they're all giving exactly the same news reports all over the world because they're coordinated by his think tank. So when you actually start looking at what a world is and what a game is, we are destroying both. And we are confused about what the rules of engagement are in the game because the people that have the power to control the media control people's minds and their belief systems. And those are the same people that have agendas that are destroying the planet. And you look at what Bill Gates is investing his money into, and it's GMO farms. He's trying to get rid of organic farming. He's trying to collect seeds. He's trying to make it so you have to buy your your food and your uh, seeds from him. He shut down. He tried to shut down all the people in India that were making naturally refined oils, such as cooking oils which led to all sorts of health problems. In fact, if you want to read a phenomenal book that lays Bill Gates on the table like I've never seen, 
It's oneness versus the 1% by Vandana Shiva. And when you actually see what his game is and the world he's trying to create and ask yourself, do I want to eat genetically modified foods, fake meat grown from genetically modified plants? Do I want to live in a world where there's no organic farming and no one regenerating the soils and we're only eating these laboratory-based products, all of which put billions and billions and billions of dollars into his pocket? And do I want to live in a world where I don't have any sovereignty over my body and that my own, own entertainment devices are spy devices and I have no freedom and that I no longer actually have the capacity to create as much abundance or, or, or wealth as I can create with my creativity because they're trying to level the playing field and go back to something sort of like a, a communist socialist type regime with just a few people at the top uh, that might make you realize that there's some bigger fires that we need to put out to use a metaphor just for you. <laughs> I wish I could have sat in on one more conversation between the two of you, because that is a powerful lesson. So two questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, if you were forced to give away all of your books, except for one, which would you keep? I would keep the book of life. It's what I wear every day. It's the one you wear without it. You and I can't be here. I would keep the book of life. And if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? I would probably want to have a drink with Jesus Christ to find out why he left a philosophy that's confused the living hell out of people. And there's now 33 different, 33,000 branches of Christianity, all claiming to have the same, uh, all claiming to have the authentic teaching. And I would ask him why we have military, a military force that signs nasty, this one's for you on bombs while they blast the shit out of everybody in the name of God. And I would ask him why we have three monotheistic religions that all believe in one God yet fight like hell with each other. Um, and I would continue with a long, long list of questions to find out what his real intention was and why the hell, what started off as a life of such beauty and gift and lessons uh, seems to be impossible for Christians to follow. And I would also ask him why research shows that of the top 100 companies that pollute the planet the most dangerously uh, has shown 95% of the board members are Christians. And I would ask him why man is said to be fallen. And I would ask him why um, it, it is that uh, people can't seem to apply the simplest dictate of all, which is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And um, that would just be a warm up for the conversation. So I'd probably need about 50 gallons of water to keep us hydrated for the conversation. Great answer, Paul. I wish we could continue this conversation for hours. If people want to find you, they can go to paulchecksblog.com. They can listen to your podcast, Living 4D with Paul Check. You're on Instagram at paul.check and Twitter at paulcheck. Anywhere else you want people to go to connect with you? Uh, you can. They can check out our social media platform where we have a whole bunch of excellent free information for people and some of the extended uh, segments of my podcast that aren't shared on the podcast. They're at the social, our social 
media platform, which is C-H-E-K-I-V-A.com, Chikiva.com, and my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash Paul, C-H-E-K, live. Uh, so youtube.com forward slash Paul, check live. There's over 550 videos I've done as a gift. It's my one of my ways of doing public service that range from deep spiritual stuff to how to heal from uh, plantar fasciitis or various other physical issues and conditioning and meditation and Tai Chi, you name it. Hell yeah. Well, thanks again for the conversation, Paul. I hope we can stay in touch. Yes. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And thanks for asking me what I would consider to be really meaningful questions. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.